We're, uh, we're continuing our series. Uh, we're on week five of fabricating truth. And you're like, that sounds like we're making stuff up. Actually, it's the opposite. We're trying to stop making stuff up, fabricating truth. We're wanting to unravel self-deception because the overall premise of the series and uh, seems to be repeated over and over and over in the Bible is that you and I are creatures of self-deception. We are very skilled at lying to ourselves. We're very skilled at telling ourselves that we're we're doing good, even when we know we weren't, we will bend the rules and then give ourselves the excuse the way out more often than not. And uh, we just want to fight against that. We want to be creatures. We want to be people that are just like, no, that's not true. That's not good. This is true. This is good. And stop lying to ourselves. We're wanting to unravel self-deception. I've said multiple times in this series that if I just take any bad person and ask them why they did what they did, they will give a reason that will include, well, it was right. It was good. Everybody does this. I was I was watching a, a TV show recently, uh, and it's one of these like survivor game show kind of things where they have to live on an island or on a river, and then you know they have to like you know not prank each other. It's more like devastate each other in the hopes of winning a half million dollars. It's it, like even as I'm saying it, I'm starting to escalate. I'm like I don't know what I would do for a half million dollars. And you know, partway through the show, they had this idea. They're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go steal all of their stuff. We're just going to steal it. And and some of the people in the group are like, no, that's wrong. And some of the people are like, yeah, but it's a game. We can play by the rules. It's it's okay. And then they stole it. And then they justified it. And then immediately after that, someone did something to them. And you know what they said? It's not fair. Oh, it's not fair. How could you do this? What is fair if not an appeal to what is ultimately good, what is ultimately right? They demonstrated by their actions in one beat that uh, fair is a little bit more subjective. It's what's good for them. Uh, but as soon as it was turned on them, it wasn't good anymore. And so that was self deception. What we want to do is we want to be creatures who live in real good, true good, and only God defines true good. We deceive ultimately in orders to be received, but as we just sang, it's not up to us to prove ourselves to God. God's already done it. We've already been received. He's a willing party in this. Um, we can accept him. In fact, I just want to just by way of making this point heavier, uh, I just want to look at John chapter 8. You don't need to turn there, but uh, we'll put it up on the screen. John chapter 8, uh, verses 31 and 32 says this. So uh, Jesus uh, said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Set you free. Now, everybody's heard this phrase. The truth will set you free. I mean, that's like a movie mantra, right? The, did you know that Jesus said at first, the truth will set you free. Here's the problem with self-deception is that it won't really set you free. It promises that it will set me free, but it always falls short. The only thing that will set me free is the truth. And so as we abide in his word, Jesus says, as we abide in his word, as we wash our minds and our spirits in, in this truth, God's truth, the one who decides who real truth is, um, then, then it starts to get inside of us. And the truth will start to set us free. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to deceive. You don't have to hide anymore. And so as we've unpacked this, we, we've, we've said, okay, well, if we're so good at deceiving ourselves, then we should be on guard about it. We should pay uh, attention. What are some ways we can know that we're no longer deceiving ourselves? If our heart's going to lie to us, what's going to tell us the truth? And the first lie detector we looked at is just the words that come out of our mouth. Out of the, uh, treasures of your heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And so like, 
how are your words? What, what have we discussed? What, what have I said in anger? What have I said when I was happy? What have I said when the pressure was high? Because out of the, out of the, out of the treasures of my heart, the mouth is going to speak. The mouth is, and my words are one of the lie detectors. And last week, we started this idea that just our actions as well, uh, what we do with our time and with our energies and where we go, these, these things tell me the truth more than my, my heart will. Where I go, what, what I spend my time on. So what I want to ask today is like, does anybody in here besides me just have a real problem with, I do things and it's like, why did I do that again? I, I keep making the same mistake and I'm just like, ah, I've stepped in it again. I've, I messed that up again. I've, I've, I've hurt that feeling again. I've, I've made that mistake again. I, I tried to make a list of some things that are pretty common. Uh, some of these I, I deal with one, one I dealt with, dealt with this morning is, uh, I, I really overestimate the amount of sleep and rest I can get in that snooze alarm. Anybody else? I, I, I don't know what I think the snooze alarm is going to accomplish. That five more minutes must be the most magical sleep in the land because I will hit the snooze 20 times. Just like, come on, just, I just want to feel rested. And like, what is that? Fi- Honestly, what is that five minutes going to do? And yet morning after morning, including this morning, I just really overestimated how much that snooze alarm is going to. And then I, I get down. I'm like, why did I do that? I've wasted so much time trying to sleep, but you know what I'm probably going to do tomorrow morning? I'm probably gonna hit that snooze alarm again. I don't know why. I just, I just believe in it. Um, there's, uh, going into my office back there is, uh, there's a series of light switches and they're like, uh, these two control this room and this one. And I, every morning, a hundred percent of the time, I will turn on the light in, in Amy's office. I have to go through Amy's office to get to my office. I'll turn on the light in Amy's office and then I will go to the other switch in the office and turn the light right back off every time thinking I'm turning the light on in the next room. I, I don't know why I do that. Um, anybody struggle with procrastination? You just put it off. Anybody uh, thinking right now it's Christmas shopping is like, you know what? It's not December 24th yet. I got some time. Anybody? You, we just put it off, right? And we, we borrow from tomorrow's time for today's stuff. And we put it off. And then when we get to the end, we're just so stressed. Why did I put it off so long? Well, you know what you're going to do next Christmas? The same thing I do. You just put it off. We procrastinate. Even though we feel the sting of it, we come back to that behavior again and we do it again. Uh, Sometimes when I'm really stressed, uh, I will apologize to people for things that have no need for apology. Do you understand? I'm, I'm sorry if you don't understand. See, see what I did there? I, I will, I will apologize because like, I, there's like an energy in me. It's like, I've got to say something to fix this when in reality I don't. And the only thing that comes out of my mouth is I'm sorry. And then I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I said sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. And it's just like this nervous little chihuahua comes out of me and I start shivering, you know? Uh, and I always like, I wonder like, where does that come from? Why, why is that in me? There's, there's a lot of behaviors that we could list. Here are some that just, you know, wherever they land, they land. I was thinking about impulsive spending people I'll talk to that's like, you know, I intend to save some money. Then all of a sudden, like the ad comes up or the coupon comes up and it's like the money goes like, why did I do that again? I've done it again. Um, I think of people uh, who they, they cheat at board games. If you want to be on my bad side, play a board game with me and try to cheat. I will be all over you, okay? But anybody who cheats at a game, uh, including the game that I mentioned earlier, the game show, uh, board games or cheating in a relationship, there's always like the self-justification that happens. And there's almost always this moment of regret, this moment of like, I'm ashamed of myself for that. 
Um, why does it repeat? Why do people find themselves in that cycle for the next thing? I think of revenge as a cycle of behaviors that people regret. You're wronged by someone at work, and you're like, they're going to get it. And you know what? And they got it coming. Susie and HR. I, I, one day I'm going to meet a Susie and HR. She is my, I just use her as all things people get mad at at work. You, get, you just get mad at somebody. And you're just like, she's going to get it. And then you get, you get revenge. And then immediately you just, I don't know. I, I think if you're a sane person, you're just like, what have I done? I did. That didn't feel nearly as good as I thought it would feel. It never feels as good as I thought it would feel. And then, you know, six months later, Susie does it again. And then you do it again. And then you feel again the way that you just were last time. Why do we do these behaviors? Every year, I want to get, I want to think, like, hey, let's think, start thinking about health. Let's get, let's get, let's get, you know, exercising. And I have plans for exercising. And then you skip one day and then you skip five days and you, know, you skip a month and you're just like, oh man, January is right around the corner. <laughs> I'll plan again for next time. And then the year comes and you do it again. Uh, last one on my list, uh, uh, just repeating behaviors. The number of times that uh, I, and I, I do this sometimes where I say yes so quick because I'm eager to help. I overcommit. I've, I've said yes to, and it forces me to say no to other things. And now I have time that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm needing to give it. Anybody else overcommit and you just overextend yourself. And then you think, I'm not going to do that again. Why do I keep doing that? Um, I want to try to, and the list could go on. I want to try to look at like where it is in us that these behaviors of how is it that I can think I don't want to do that? Where does that thought come from? And where does the energy to do it again come from? It's like, that's strange, right? That that might be the definition of insanity is that you continue to repeat this over and over again. Where does this universal insanity of humanity exist? And I want to look at two passages in, in Romans to try to unpack that a little bit. If you will join with me, uh, I'll start in Romans 2. And then if you want to put your finger in Romans 7, that's where we will uh, land the plane. I'll give you a chance to turn to Romans chapter 2. So uh, last week we looked at James, and James is saying, you know, faith without works is dead. And a lot of people, uh, including Martin Luther, if you know that name, was really offended that James would make such a statement. Um, the problem is, is that ideas like that are in the rest of the Bible. Romans 2 kind of brings that back up. This is from Paul. Paul is the author of Romans. And here's, here's what he says, in, starting in verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What Paul is doing in the book of Romans, I should actually, I should have said this earlier. Paul is explaining the gospel to people who are completely un-Jewish. Like the Roman people, they don't, they weren't exposed to the Old Testament. They didn't grow up with the Old Testament. And so the entire book from beginning to end is an explanation of a very Jewish idea that a Messiah will save you. There is a gospel. There is a thing called sin. There is a consequence for sin, but Jesus has paid the price ultimately for that sin. None of that would make sense to a Roman audience who didn't grow up with those terms, the, the, those hooks to hang it on. And so he starts with, for he, he started with explaining the law and the consequences of sin, but he says in verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not good enough to just be exposed to the Bible to be exposed to God's ways, we have to commit our lives to it and do the things that we're called to do. It requires obedience. Verse 14, 
He says, for when Gentiles, who Gentiles are non-Jewish people, if that word is unfamiliar to you. So you didn't grow up Jewish, you're a Gentile. If you're in this room and your parents aren't Jewish, you didn't grow up Jewish, you are a Gentile, which is most of us. He says, um, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. He's, he's, he's stepping back. And when he says the, the law, the Jewish person is thinking Old Testament, thinking, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He's thinking that. And he's stepping back and he says, you know, these Gentiles who don't have the law, who do righteous things, who do good things, they are testifying to themselves that they have a sense, a true sense, of what good and bad is. Think, think about this. Why is it that even before you knew Jesus was against murdering people, why didn't you just like, you know, take out that one guy who cut you off in traffic? Why didn't you murder someone? You would say, because murder is wrong. There's something innate in humanity that sort of agrees with the words of God that says yeah, murder is wrong. Uh, stealing is wrong. There, there are universal uh, pieces of morality. Uh, I'm not going to unpack that all the way. Read some C.S. Lewis if you're interested in that. But basically, all of humanity has agreed on some set pieces of morals. But the question is, is why? Why would, would murder, why would a society ever decide that murder was wrong, for example? Because there's something written on their heart. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's saying, you know, people, even without knowing who Jesus is, they have a conscience and they go against their own conscience. So, I, I mean, I don't need a show of hands, but just imagine, like, there was a time before you were a follower of Jesus. Did you ever do something that you immediately or eventually regretted? Not because the Holy Spirit convicted you, not because, you, you know, the sermon really stepped on your toes. You weren't even going to church at the time, but you, you did a thing and you immediately regretted it. Why would you do the thing? Or why would the regret be there? Paul is kind of teasing this out. There's something spiritual in everyone. There is a remembrance of who God is, even before we are willing to acknowledge God. There are echoes. I, I, I use this phrase a lot in, in the way I think of it. There are echoes of the Garden of Eden that are in all of humanity, a longing to get back to perfection, and in some ways an agreement about what that perfection is, that God is good. And when, when anyone goes against their conscience, they are a testimony to themselves that they are guilty under the law. They need God's forgiveness, if for no other reason, that they did a behavior in contrast to their own inner desires. Where does this come from? Why do people do things that are against their desires? Turn to chapter 7, if you would. What I like about chapter 7, uh, for two things, one, it ends a big section of Romans. Chapter 8 picks up a big section of Romans. So it lands the plane on a lot of it. But what I really love about uh, chapter 7 specifically, again, the author is Paul. What I really love about what Paul does in chapter 7 is that he doesn't point the finger all the time through the book of Romans. He was saying the Gentiles do this. Paul would say he's definitely not a Gentile. He's, he's the most Jewish man he can think of, right? And there's this moment in Paul's writing in chapter 7 where he stops pointing the finger out at other people and he starts thinking about himself. He starts doing what we're talking about doing right here, which is like our heart can deceive us. So he starts to pull out of his own heart, like, what have I done? What, what is in me? What, what, why do I do the things that I do? 
And so here's what he says in chapter 7, verse 15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can, can just a few of us quietly in ourselves just say like amen or something like that is, how many times have I done a thing and I'm like, why did I do it again? All the time. I mean, it just, it just happens. And Paul wants to ask the question, why do I continue to do the thing that I hate? He's going to continue. Let's see how he answers it. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that the law is good. You know, sometimes I do things I don't want to do it, but by doing that, I'm agreeing that the law's version of things is good. That's why I feel guilty. That's why it's called sin. Like the law was good the whole time, but I'm doing this other thing. I'm doing things that are contrary to God's will for me. Um, but I'm, but my desires, the fact that I have that desire is proving that I'm, I'm at least mentally agreeing that the law is good. It says verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. He's going to start to tease this out. He's he's going to land, I'll just spoil it for you, he's going to land with like, I think there are two things alive inside me, two, two uh, 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 I don't want to use the word forces, that sounds that sounds all Star Wars-y. Uh, there's two things alive inside me, I'll think of a word for it, natures, there we go, two dynamics, two natures alive inside me. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, Comma, that is, he's going to specify this, that is in my flesh. He's like, there's nothing, I have this nature in me, and it's called flesh, and there's just really nothing good about it. It's kind of a selfish piece of me. It's the piece of me that wants what's coming to me. It's the piece of me that wants the revenge. It's the piece of me that that acts in all the anger ways. Um, let me finish this, this verse, and then I, I want to ask a question. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have this desire can't come from the flesh. So the desire has to be some other piece of my nature. So I have this flesh and this, we'll say, spirit, wherever desire comes from. When Paul is writing about the things that he regrets, I, I wonder if we could think of any examples of things that Paul might regret. You, you and I, we have our things. We, we raise our voices. We, we overspend. We overcommit. We procrastinate. We do all the things. What did Paul do? You know, Paul was so sure of his own rightness uh, shortly before writing this, not many years before writing this, he was so sure of his own rightness that he sanctioned the murder of people who follow Jesus. And in case they caught a cramp in their shoulder, he would hold their coats while they were going to town to take out Stephen. You can read that in the book of Acts. Paul would say later that he is the chief amongst sinners, that he is saved. Like the, the fact that Jesus would save him was just a complete mystery to Paul. And so when he says things like, there's something in me I don't like, he has like a history that he points to that's probably like the greatest hits of his greatest regrets that could play on repeat in his mind. Now, I know from talking to many people, um, we also have a greatest hits of our greatest regrets that play on history in our mind, and we use those, and really the enemy uses those as fuels for, you're not good enough, God would never save you, you're not, he would never rescue you. And Paul is, he's going to highlight, he's saying, no, I have two natures in me, let's, let's see how he, he seals this. Because he may end this, by the way, he may end this with the most depressing message ever, and then I'm going to leave with Merry Christmas, I hope it works out for you. But I think, I think he's got something else he wants to do here. Um, verse uh, 18, 19, thank you. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Interesting 
that he wants to do good. I do not do the good that I want. Like Again, there's two natures. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's like, okay, that's the flesh side of me, but I am something else. Paul is, he, he is he's overly developed at this point, this theology, that Jesus has resurrected something in him. And he's identifying, like, I am whatever Jesus has in me. I am whatever I am in Christ. And so that's going to be his, his spirit. But my flesh, like, sometimes it, it pulls the other way. There's this tug of war that's happening in me. Um, notice, by the way, for all of you who grew up on Tom and Jerry, Notice how many times the little angels didn't pop up on his shoulders. <laughs> it's not like, you know, the angel and then like the devil on one side whispering in his ears, and that's where the tug of war is happening. All of this tug of war in Paul is happening where? It's in his heart. He's like being pulled back and forth from his own desires and his own wants, and I'm going the wrong way. At no point is his enemy external, and he's got to fight the devil his enemy is inside him. It's sin that's wrestling in him for control. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I want, man, is that not a law? That, that's basically Murphy's law. Every time I get ready to do a truly good thing, there is an evil option at hand, and it is tempting. It looks like a little brownie with icing and sprinkles, like, come do this. And it's just like every time I'm ready to do good, evil is an option. Now, when, when I read that, that evil lies close at hand, I think of the warning that the Lord gave to Cain when he's about to kill his brother. Uh, I don't know if you've read that recently, but in Genesis 4, he's about to kill his brother, and the Lord goes to Cain and says, listen, uh, sin is crouching out the door, and its desire is to subdue you. You need to subdue it. You've got to fight against it. And he didn't. He, he killed his brothers. Paul is saying there's some kind of law in the universe, I guess, that when I'm ready to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It's, it's something that brings him joy. He loves studying God's ways. He wants to know what's good. He wants to do good. But I see in my members, again, not on his shoulders, I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then if I just like, you know, amen, we close the, the book right there, that is a, it's a sad place. It, honestly, it's a place of many, uh, many preachers will get on. It's like, wretched man that we all are. Let's uh, all pray and go, go home now. You know, it's like we end with that. See, the beauty of this is that if you're in Christ, uh, the truths come to the next verse and the next verse. And we need to continue reading because, because if you're like me, the highlight reel of my regrets stack up. I'm laying in bed and I'm trying to sleep and they're cycling through there, all the things I didn't do and wish I did and could have done and regret after regret after regret. And Paul, he's kind of doing the same thing, but he's doing it publicly for the entire church to read for the rest of ever. And he ends in verse 24, at least, with the wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. He ends with my sin, my proclivity to doing wrong, even when I know right, I can't force it. It requires someone to deliver me. 
Paul doesn't end this with thinking, and I'm now going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. So that's what gets us in trouble. But when he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's admitting we need God to do a thing. Praise God that he did. That's the point of the gospel. That's the reason why Paul brings this up. Next verse, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God within my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's saying I'm, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I do wrong. I said that our actions, our behaviors, they are a lie detector for our heart. If you've ever done anything, this week that you regret, it is proof to you that you need a rescuer and it, it, it admits that the word of God is true and alive. Like, yeah, that what, what Paul is describing has been my experience of humanity. It should not be, for followers of Jesus, it should not be the reason to beat ourselves up and to pick back up what the Lord's already forgiven. Thanks be to God that he's rescued us. Now, one, one last uh, piece of Bible study before I land the plane on something. We just finished chapter 7 in Romans, and uh, some of you may know this, but uh, the chapters and the verses, uh, Paul didn't write that. He didn't write those little numbers in the side. When he wrote this, it was just one big long scroll all the way down, just sentence after sentence. He may have put a space if he thought, I don't know if he did paragraph breaks, but he definitely didn't put the chapter. Those were added about you know, 600, 700 years ago to make it easy for people in church to find where the preacher was. If I said chapter 8, verse 1, you know how to find it, but Paul never wrote chapter 8, verse 1, which means that he just kept going in his thought. And the fact that there's a chapter break right there is sometimes like we just stopped reading right there. I just invite you, if you're doing personal Bible study, if you get to the end of a chapter, at least read the next two verses or so to make sure that they don't connect because this connects. Chapter 8, verse 1. After all of what he just said, I can't do right. I try to do right, but I know what's right. I know good. I find in me that there's two natures that are at odds with each other. Thanks be to God. He is the deliverer. Verse Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do I know that this verse is connecting to the rest of what he just said? Because it has the word therefore in it. It's, it's the continuation of the thought. It is the, it is the final piece of the puzzle. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have regrets, you do not have a reason to doubt your salvation. You have things you need to lay down at the foot of the cross. That's all that is. And everybody does. If you say that you're without sin, first John says that you're a liar. If you say that you've never sinned, you're telling God that he's a liar. But if you find in yourself a regret, if you find in yourself a sin, you're invited to just repent of that sin. Um, you're invited to be honest with yourself. Be honest with your Lord. I have let you down. I've let someone down. I've hurt other people. My actions betrayed my real thought. Why? Because you have two natures alive in you, Christian. You have your spirit who wants to follow Jesus, wants to know the ways of God. That's why you come to church. That's why you learn God's word because you're burying that truth in there so that your flesh can't whisper lies to you because your heart, your flesh will deceive the mess right out of you. Uh, it will have your head spinning if you don't listen to the truths of God. So you may have today two natures alive in you, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he is faithful to complete the good work that he has started in you. And so what, what I want to do is just kind of end with this meditation. Is it, is it is from within this kind of honest dissatisfaction with past self-deception that the Lord guides us into a deeper life with him.
The immature instinct when you have a regret is to cover it up, is to lie about it, is to kind of manipulate the story so that you were kind of right and if you only knew what the other person did, et cetera, et cetera. That's the immature thing. There's no, there's no truth in that, and because there's no truth in that, there's no freedom in that. But if you're honest and you bring it to the Lord, and you're like, I'm dissatisfied with it, then bring it to him, and you're going to find that there is a deeper life with the Lord as a result of it. And so I would invite you that if you have anything that's just kind of aching on your heart, you just repent of it. If you have sin, it's just like, yeah, I've got stuff going on. What do I do with it, Jesse? I need to, I need to overcome it. I need to do really good for the next month to, to make it so that it, you don't. Just repent. Remind yourself that you need Jesus today. There's not a Christian in this room, myself included, that does not need the redeeming work of Jesus alive in me today and tomorrow and the next day. Remind yourself that you need Jesus, and it's okay to need him. Paul said, I need a deliverer. In his epic book of Romans, he's giving like a personal journal, and he says, I need a deliverer. Thanks be to God that he's the one who delivered him. When we get this truth down, by the way, when we get to the place where though we have dissatisfaction in our previous actions, but we know what to do with it, we turn that over to the Lord and we repent and we, we do our business with him, we start to reflect the Sermon on the Mount in all of those blessed pieces. I just want to read a few of the, the Beatitudes at, at the beginning, if you don't mind, in Roman, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How, how do you get to be poor in spirit until you find out that your spirit's losing a fight against your flesh? When you realize like you've lost a fight a couple of times and you just are honest with yourself and with God, then, then you kind of reflect that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for those that, for they shall be comforted. There's a, there's a spiritual grief. And I said this last week. It's hard to do what we're saying right here to start fighting, dis, you know, self-deception. There's a spiritual grief, a spiritual mourning that happens and, like you might be leaning towards, well, if it's mourning, if it's grief, I'm not supposed to, Jesus wants me to be happy. He wants you to be like really happy though, not fake happy. There's a blessedness in mourning and grieving. Blessed are the, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When, when we realize we're not strong enough, but Jesus is, when we realize it's not really up to us to complete it, but we can continue fighting as long as we're honest with ourselves, then we're meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. If you, Christian, are in here and you're just like, I'm just here because I I want to be righteous. I want my life to be righteous and I want my kids to know that what righteousness looks like. I want to build a home full of righteousness. I hunger and I thirst for it. That is the beginning of the right place to be when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When you're honest with yourself about self-deception, and you run into someone who's currently not being honest with themselves about self-deception, it's so easy to be merciful to them. Because you look at them and be like, I used to be like that. I understand. Yeah, okay. You don't have to judge them. You don't have to put them in their place. They come at you with their little venom, their little sting. It's like, yeah, I used to bite people too. But I don't have to do that. You can be merciful because the Lord has guided you to that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know a single person, Christian or otherwise, who doesn't want to see God in action. If you want to see God in action, it's to have a pure heart, which means you have to stop falling for the self-deception that your heart is feeding you. I have to stop falling for the self-deception that my heart is feeding me, and I have to choose truth. 
Let me pray for us uh, as we close out. I just invite you to, to remind yourself you need Jesus today and repent of anything you've got going on. As Christmas is rolling up, I pray for you and your families. Um, I pray that your, your, your home, your heart, will be full of joy as a result in part of you doing this hard work of untangling uh, self-deception. Pray with me, please, Father. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, we thank you for the transparency that, that Paul had, and just that it, it meets us. Uh, it's it's such a human uh, condition to to wrestle with ourselves and to to be duplicitous. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would you would correct us. Uh, I pray that you give us clarity. I pray that you give us peace, Father. I pray in the name of Jesus that the men and women in here would be just people of peace, at peace with who you are and who, what you've accomplished. Um, at peace with uh, both of the natures that are alive, but uh, seeing the the truth of the Spirit alive and at work in their hearts and in their homes, I pray that you would uh, you'd bless these homes, uh, that they would be uh, places of peace and um, and growth as uh, as we get ready for Christmas, that we would have more joy uh, as we as we reflect on the the coming of the King. And Lord, I, in the name of Jesus, I just pray you would uh, uh, save more people in our community. Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.